take your Bibles in whatever format you may have them. Paper bound or mobile device or tablet. Take them with me and turn to John's Gospel. The Gospel according to John. And chapter 21. The Gospel according to John in chapter 21. We're looking at verses 1 to 14 as our passage and our assignment this morning uh, in the Holy Spirit is this, foretasting the kingdom. Would you say that with me? Foretasting the kingdom. Foretasting the kingdom. John 21 verses 1 to 14. Follow with me and keep it open on your lap if you will, because we will reference different pieces and parts of it this morning as we unpack this together. And there's a, there's a whole lot in this passage that we're not even going to be able to scratch the surface of this morning. But nonetheless, I trust that the Holy Spirit will open the eyes of our hearts and our understanding and fasten His intention, the intention of the Father to ours. Later, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. This is how he revealed himself. Now, there have been numerous revelations of Jesus taking place post-resurrection. That's what, that's what we're reading about here. He's revealing himself again to his disciples beside the Sea of Galilee and this is how he revealed himself. Verse 2, several of the disciples were there, seven of them in fact. Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. At dawn, would you say those two words with me? At dawn, it, it, the, these are very significant. John is brilliant in how he writes this gospel because there are hints and innuendos that he gives us all throughout it. And this is one of the many right here. At dawn. John's hinting at the fact that a whole new day, a whole new world is dawning. While everything may appear as before, as we prayed a moment ago, in fact, nothing is the same as before, now that Jesus has risen. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out to them, Fellas, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. 
Then he said, throw out your net on the right hand, starboard side of the boat. You'll get some then. So they did. And they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Then the disciple Jesus loved, and traditionally this is understood to mean John himself. He refers to himself throughout uh, his gospel as the one that Jesus loved. There's a powerful truth just in that alone, the understanding that we have of ourselves in Christ. Then the disciple that Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord! When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work. Now this is kind of a humorous bit right here. Because it, it was common as fishermen that they would strip right down for working, uh, often even naked uh, as they worked. And so why in the world, when he's going to jump in for a swim, he decided to get dressed? Who knows? But that's Peter, right? He's impulsive. He throws on his clothes. He throws on his duds, and he jumps in to the water and headed to shore. The others stayed with the boat, and that's another comical part of it. Peter leaves them to do the work, and pulled the loaded net to shore, for they were only about a hundred yards from shore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire, and some bread. Bring some of the fish you just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to the shore. There were 153 large fish, and yet the net hadn't torn. Now, come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. This was the third time Jesus had revealed himself to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. If Jesus had simply remained in his grave, he would be remembered, if he was remembered at all, as the noblest, idealist, tragically crushed by the forces of history. Perhaps a few of his disciples would have carried on his program in some form or another for a time. But eventually, the Jesus movement, like so many others like it, would have run out of steam. The church fathers teach us that the single most extraordinary enduring fact of early Christianity is that the Christian church continued to exist as a messianic movement. There could have been in the first century no surer sign that someone was not the Messiah than his death at the hands of the enemies of Israel. For one of the central marks of Messiahship was precisely victory over those enemies. 
that Peter, James, John, Paul, Thomas, and the rest could announce throughout the Mediterranean world that Jesus was in fact the long-awaited Israelite Messiah and that they could go to their deaths even defending this claim are the surest indications that something monumentally significant happened to Jesus after his death. That something was the resurrection. The resurrection is what unstoppably motivated them to carry on. While too many modern theologians have tried to explain the resurrection away as wishful thinking, uh, a fantasy, a vague symbol, or a, a literary invention, or some uh, sort of metaphor and nothing more. The New Testament writers could not be clearer. The crucified Jesus, who had died and been buried, revealed Himself alive again to His disciples. This truth, beloved, remains and is likewise applicable to us today. Here and now, people who believe, truly believe in the resurrection. That is to say, in God making a whole new world in which everything will be set right at last those people are unstoppably motivated to work for that new world in the present. That's what we see with Jesus' first disciples as they come to finally, slowly, but finally understand what has happened with Jesus and the resurrection. They are unstoppably motivated to work for the advancement of all that has come about. Namely, the new world that Christ has newly created and called forth. You see, we're hearing echoes here of the Genesis creation in the resurrection of Christ. They're motivated to work for the new world. Just tell them I can't come to the phone right now, okay? Thank you. The risen Christ was, as all of the accounts in the New Testament attest, the risen Christ was strange. Say that with me, will you? Strange. It was strange. The Jesus that the disciples knew pre-crucifixion and entombment was not the same Jesus altogether that they were seeing revealed to them post-resurrection. It was strange. On the one hand, He was the same human God. Jesus, with whom they had walked with and eaten and drank and to whom they had listened. But on the other hand, He was very different. In fact, He was so changed 
that frequently they didn't immediately recognize him or even acknowledge him, as we see here, even in this story that we're looking at this morning. It was as though he stood on the borderline now between two worlds, still very much existing in this dimension of space and time, but also transcending it, participating now in a higher, better world. Through certain hints in the Older Testament, some first century Jews had begun to cultivate the conviction that at the end of time, God would bring the righteous dead back to life and restore them to a transfigured earth. Well, now, in the risen Christ, the first Christians saw this hope that they had heard rumors of for so long. They saw this hope being realized. In Paul's language, Christ was the first fruits of those who had fallen asleep. That is to say, he was the initial instance of the general resurrection of the dead that would come. He was the guarantee of more to come. Look at somebody, whether they're sitting right beside you or across the aisle, and just say to them, there's more to come. Go ahead and say that again. There's more to come. The, revela the, the, the revelation of Jesus and the resurrection proclaim there's more to come. Resurrection is about human beings who have thoroughly died being thoroughly alive again. That's what the word meant in the first century. In Him, they saw the dawn of the promised restoration in God making a whole new world in which everything will be set right at last. And so they began to see that the sacred meal... The Eucharist was not simply an expression of full flourishing in this world, not simply about justice and peace and nonviolence here and now, but it was also in anticipation. It was a meal of anticipation, a foretaste of an elevated, transfigured, and perfect world yet to come where God's will would be completely done and His kingdom completely come. It was a foretaste of the kingdom. Beloved, every time we partake of the Eucharist together, every time we share together the Holy Communion meal, every time we share together around the Lord's table, we are foretasting of the kingdom to come. The kingdom now and yet to come. One of the most beautiful evocations of this heavenly meal is found in this passage that we have opened before us today. The epilogue 
of the 21st chapter of John's Gospel. John's Gospel is one of literary genius. It is a brilliant work, as I said to you a moment ago, marked by subtle and intimate symbolism. So, what that means is we must proceed carefully as we examine this story. John tells us that on this occasion, the risen Christ appeared to seven of His disciples by the Sea of Tiberias in Galilee, or the Sea of Galilee, as it's commonly called. Throughout the Gospels, beautiful Galilee. I have never been. Perhaps you have. I hope to get there someday soon. But beautiful Galilee, Jesus' home country, is symbolic of the land of resurrection and new life. Throughout the Scriptures. After the Paschal events in Jerusalem, the disciples of Jesus had returned there and taken up, it appears, their old livelihood again. For John tells us that the seven of them, under the leadership of Peter, were in a boat heading out to do some fishing. But we must pay attention to the mystical depth of the narrative here that John gives us. When Jesus revealed Himself to them, on the Sunday evening of His resurrection. That's when this is. This is the Sunday evening of Jesus' resurrection. And He's revealing Himself to them on this Sunday evening. Jesus, according to John, breathed on these disciples and said, Receive the Holy Spirit and peace be with you as the Father has sent Me so I send you. When He appears to them then and reveals Himself to them. That's John 20, verses 21 and 22. Just the chapter previous. Now watch this. I'll say this again. Jesus, on the Sunday evening of His resurrection, in John 20, he breathes on His disciples and He says to them, Receive the Holy Spirit and peace be with you as the Father has sent Me, so I send you. It's on the screen. Let's read it together, will you? Receive the Holy Spirit. Peace be with you as the Father has sent Me, so I send you. This is the previous occasion to their fishing expedition now that we're reading about. One chapter earlier, He's revealing Himself to them on another occasion. And this is what He does and says to them. Now, taking someone's dying breath in one's mouth was a folk ritual of the time. Here, however, the resurrected Jesus seems to reverse such a ritual. And of course, His breath partakes of immortality and eternity. And He breathes on them. So, 
with that, we should see and appreciate the significance of this fishing expedition as a symbol of Jesus' church across space and time to this very day here now as we sit here together, diligent at its apostolic task of world mission, seeking souls, making disciples, advancing the kingdom of God, a a very fulfillment of the Lord's words through Jeremiah, in fact, in Jeremiah 16, verse 16, where the Lord through Jeremiah prophesies, but now I am sending for many fishermen who will catch them. Some would interpret and describe this scene that we're looking at as one of complete apostasy on the part of the disciples. Where Peter's saying, oh, well, forget this, I'm going fishing. Because the disciples, no doubt, were so bewildered and and so confused and disturbed over what had taken place with the crucifixion that they were still whirling from all of that. And so it would be easy to interpret and describe this scene as one of complete apostasy where they just turn their backs and say, forget this, I'm going fishing. However, for Peter, like half the things Peter impulsively proposed in the Gospel, it's quite likely another case of the right motivation and the wrong judgment. An activity undertaken in desperation and despondency, in fact. Peter wanted to get on with life, to do the next thing. Fishing was the world they knew. It would feel strange going back to it, but they had families who needed looking after, who must have as well, been both bewildered and amused to have them back again after all their adventures with Jesus. And might well have been even suggesting to them that they should settle down and do something sensible for a change. Like earning some money. Like catching some fish. But you know what? It didn't work. For we see and learn in this story that we're looking at as those seven disciples learned once more in this unsuccessful fishing expedition, we learn that for without Jesus, we can do nothing. John 15, 5. Without me, Jesus says, You can do nothing. Zero. Zilch. Nada. And so John tells us here, at the break of dawn, at the break of dawn, they spied a mysterious figure on the distant shore who shouted out to them, Hey, fellas, didn't you catch anything? And when they answered in the negative, 
he instructed them to cast the net over the right side, the starboard side of the boat. And when they did so, they brought in a huge catch of fish. Loved ones, the life and work of Jesus' church, yours and mine, his church that he's building and we are a part of, John seems to be telling us that the life and work of Jesus' church will be a lengthy twilight struggle, a long obedience, a hard work that will often seem to bear little or no fruit. But after the long night, at the dawn with Jesus, and as we are joyfully serving in the midst of Trinity in action, if you will, serving together with the entire Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, at the dawn of new life and a new order, which will break in in the transfigured new creation world inaugurated by Jesus. That's what He's demonstrating through this miracle of this fish catch. He's trying to, to reveal to these guys, guys, look, this is a whole new day. A whole new order is breaking in. My kingdom is breaking in because of what has taken place. The catch of fish that He makes possible is the totality of people that Christ will gather to Himself as He builds His church. It is the new Israel, the eschatological church, the church of the last day, the ultimate church. We know this through a subtle bit of symbolism that John employs here. When the fish are dragged ashore, John makes a curious point to tell us their exact number. 153. A figure commonly taken in the ancient world to signify the total number of species of fish in the sea. Representing all the nations and people groups, the ethnos, the ethnicities of humankind. After the miraculous haul, the disciple whom Jesus loved, as I said, traditionally identified as the author of the Gospel of John, shouted out, It is the Lord! In verse 7, St. John, the one who rested on the breast of the Lord at the Last Supper, and who had the greatest intuitive perception for Jesus' intentions, represents here for us in this story that mystical dimension of the church. Beloved, up and down the centuries there have been poets and preachers and teachers and liturgists and mystics and saints who have a prophetic instinct for who Jesus truly is and what He truly desires. And they are the ones who typically see the working of the Lord first. As John does here. 
who recognize His purposes even before the leadership of the church does. Even before Peter and the rest of the guys did. John's cry in this story, it is the Lord, anticipates their intuitions and discoveries. The works of John, his writings, especially the Gospel of John and Revelation, the book of Revelation of which he is the author, show more than traces of the mystical spirit that are charged full with it. These letters. Now, I want to say something about this word mystic and mystical. Because often we, we, we misunderstand these words. And these words, of course, in our day have been defined in new ways that have completely twisted and polluted and, and perverted these words. And so often we find them altogether unacceptable. The words suggested someone who was weird and emotionally unstable. When you describe someone as being a mystic or mystical, that's what you're thinking of. You know, those nuts and granola kind of people. You ever met those guys, those people? Or is it just me? I'm the only one that ever meets these people. This is what we think of when we think, because we've defined mystical in this way, those emotionally unstable and worst of all, those unsound theological kind of people. Persons with a temperamental fondness for the fantastic. And they have some kind of psychic bent about them that predisposes them toward the occult or bizarre religious beliefs. And they have an incredible capacity for self-deception. This, this is all that comes to our minds often when we think of these words mystic and mystical. But while these ones have been called mystics, they most surely are not. The term mystic, as I use it here, and as, as John employs it in his writings often, though he doesn't expressly use that word, what we see taking place in the record of John's writings can be described as truly mystical on many occasions. So the term mystic as it's used here refers to that personal spiritual experience that was common to the saints of the Bible and well known to the saints of church history and the multitudes of persons in the post-biblical era. I refer to the mystic who has been brought by the Gospel into intimate fellowship with the Godhead. And their theology is no less and no more than is taught in the Christian Scriptures. They walk the high road of truth like the old prophets and apostles. And down through the centuries, the martyrs and reformers and the, the Puritans and evangelists and missionaries of the cross, 
they differ from the ordinary Orthodox Christians only because they experience their faith down in the depths of their feelings, their soul. While others may not. They exist in a world of spiritual reality. They are quietly, deeply, and sometimes almost ecstatically aware of the presence of God in their own nature and in the world around them. Their religious experience is something elemental as old as time and as the creation. And it's the immediate acquaintance with God by union with the eternal Son. It is to know that which passes knowledge. All of this is packed in to a, a biblical understanding of mystic. And we see this in John. John was that one in this story. The one who saw things, who perceived things, who laid his head upon the breast of Jesus and heard the heartbeat of Jesus. And so was perceptive to the intentions of Jesus even before anyone else ever seemed to be. And here he is again. It is the Lord. He's the first one. To recognize Jesus as He's revealing Himself to them. And what these prophetic ones are ultimately perceiving is the eschatological purpose of the church. The ultimate purpose of the church. The shore toward which the vessel of the church is sailing. When Peter hears that it is the Lord, he throws on his clothes, as we read. And what seems here as a funny incidental detail is actually symbolically rich for us. Because remember, after their sin, again, we're hearing echoes of Genesis here. After their sin, Eve and Adam, what did they do? They made clothes for themselves. For they were ashamed. And so Peter certainly had some unfinished business with Jesus. Because he had denied Jesus three times, remember? And no question, Peter was dealing with a huge weight load of shame. Even on this fishing trip. He was carrying this with him. And so what does he do? He puts on his clothes and jumps out of the boat. Eve and Adam had made clothes for themselves. They were ashamed. Peter had three times denied Jesus. He feels similarly ashamed and undignified to appear naked and unashamed before the Lord. He therefore represents in this symbolic narrative all those sinners across the centuries. Even you and me who will in our shame and penitence seek forgiveness from Christ. And we try to cover ourselves before Him who knows all and sees all. As the disciples come ashore, they see that Jesus is doing something 
altogether in character with all that we have considered together this far in our study in this series. What's he doing? He's hosting a meal for them. And we see this so often throughout Jesus' ministry. The Word spoken and the sacrament of the meal. The Word spoken and the sacrament of the meal. Even on this day, what's he, he greets them. Hey guys, have you caught anything? No. What's he do? He commands. He speaks then a word. A crea- Throw your net on this side. So they get a command and then they get a catered meal. The sacraments, the Word, the Eucharist. He's hosting a meal for them. Once again, He chooses. Watch this. Jesus chooses to reveal Himself Eucharistically through a meal. He's often revealing Himself, revealing His heart, revealing His intentions through a meal. At a meal table. The disciples who, who bumped into him on the road to Emmaus. Remember that story? And so he's, he, he's walking along with them and they're going on and on about all that's happened. And he says, Jesus says to them, guys, why are you so upset? And they're like, hello, ding, ding, come on, wake up. Haven't you been around? Don't you know what's happened? And so then the, the disciples get to their destination and, they, they, and, and Jesus fakes that he, like he's going on. I'll see you later. And so they, no, no, come on in. Do you, you want something? Come and join us. And what happens? They have a meal. And the moment that Jesus breaks bread with them, the Scripture says they recognized who he was. He's always revealing Himself eucharistically through these meals, through a meal. They saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, come, have some breakfast. Verses 9 and 12. Symbolically, they have arrived at the end of time. The eschatological church. The ultimate purposes and promise of God being fulfilled. They've arrived at the end of time and the end of their earthly mission, and they are at the dawn now of a new age, ushered into the definitive banquet of which meals from Eden through to the Last Supper were all but anticipations and foreshadows. Disciples, mystics, saints, and forgiven sinners are all welcome at this breakfast, inaugurating the new and elevated manner of being human, the new creation life that God had intended to give us from the time of the Garden of Eden. And now, on the dawn of this morning, During this fishing trip, Jesus reveals to them 
that this is dawning. And it begins to dawn on them all that has taken place and is taking place and will take place. The tension of the already but the not yet begins to dawn on them. And they see that while Jesus is very much the Jesus they knew, now that He is risen, He is very different. And while it appears that nothing has changed, it begins to dawn on them over a breakfast of bread and fish, a Eucharist, a meal shared, that everything has changed. And it's a whole new day, a whole new hour, under a whole new order, as God's kingdom is breaking in.